Would you stand with me this morning as we read the Word of God? We're going to go to Romans chapter 4, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11 together. And um, let's stand and give our attention to the Word of God this morning. Romans 5, 6 through 11. And one of the things that we practice here together is at the end of the reading of the main text for the sermon, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Therefore, uh, excuse me, chapter verse six. <laughs> we could, let's start at verse one, why not? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The reason that we can have hope, as we talked about on the first week, the reason that we can have and truly be at peace with God, and the reason that we can experience true and lasting joy is because in love God sent His Son to redeem wicked and sinful people that he had chosen to set his affections upon. The only reason that we can have hope, the only reason that we can be at peace with God, the only reason that we can actually sit here and say that we have an opportunity to experience true and lasting joy is because God decided to send his son to redeem wicked and sinful people that he had chosen ahead of time to set his affections upon. Praise God. And so it is important for us to remember who God was sending Jesus for. Remember the last couple of weeks as we looked at Luke chapter 2, and Jesus is born 
not in Jerusalem in the city of kings, but in Bethlehem, the house of bread, a farming community. And when the king of kings is born, he's not wrapped in robes and a little crown placed on his head, but instead he's wrapped in the only thing that was at hand, which was grave clothes, mummy cloths, wrapped around the Savior, and then he's laid, not in a crib fit for a king, but in a manger, a feeding trough. And then the announcement of the king being born is made, and it is made with more pomp and circumstance than any pomp and circumstance has ever been given to any king ever born. But the announcement didn't go out to other royals. It didn't go out to call together all of the, the, the princes and the princesses and all the kings and the dukes and the counts and the countesses and duchesses. It, it went to stinky shepherds who were sore afraid. The very ones who, when they came into town the rest of the community would turn their faces away and turn their noses up to because these stinky, smelly shepherds had the worst manners. They, they were not clean and they stunk like sheep. And anyone who's ever spent any time with sheep can tell you sheep stink. They stink. And yet that is who God sends his messengers to, to the least, not the greatest. And that will be a theme that will run throughout all of Jesus' life and ministry. And we need to understand this morning that it is a theme that is tied closely to his death and his resurrection as well. What did Jesus say? If you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. You have to serve. And Jesus came as a suffering servant to serve the least, not the greatest. And so it's important for us to remember who God was sending Jesus for and to understand why that gives us hope. Because we are like the ones that Paul wrote to in Corinthians when he said, listen, guys, not many of you had it going on before Christ was brought to your hearts. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wealthy. And it is important for us to recognize that the least that God was sending his son to was for us. It was not for the well, but for the sick. Not for the strong, but for the weak. Not the spiritually living, but the dead. Not for those who had everything together, but for those who were hopelessly and helplessly falling apart. Look at our text again, verses 6 through 11. It says it right here. For while we were still weak, 
while we were weak, at the right time Christ died, not for the righteous, what does it say? For the ungodly. Now, Paul really wants us to focus in on this, and that's why he gives us this next verse. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so he, he lets us know, hey, there, there are some people in this world, Imago Dei, image of God, there, there's enough there that, that if someone was good enough, they might even dare to die. And, and many parents would say, I would, I would die for my kids, right? Even though they're not very good, but I love them. So I'd die for them. So, so even for, for a good person, someone might dare to die, okay, but who dies? Who dies for the unrighteous? Who willingly sacrifices himself for the ones who don't deserve it because they don't deserve it? Who does that? No one does that. And Paul puts that here for us to, to really jumpstart our minds and our hearts to, to make that connection and make that, that, that place inside of our minds and our hearts to understand that that is true. That we wouldn't probably volunteer to die. Probably not even for a good person and especially not for those who don't deserve it. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this flies in the face of most of the theology that's taught from the pulpit today. Because it says God was not waiting for you to get your act together to be good in order to earn salvation. But rather, while you were in the muck and the mire, God rescued you and saved you in Christ while you were still dirty, while you were still sinners. Christ died for you. And so there are implications here. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So not only has Jesus' uh, blood been poured out so that we might be justified, but now also we are saved by him from the wrath of God because the wrath of God is being poured out on sin. And yet for those whom Christ died, they stand under the shadow of the cross and the wrath of God is absorbed for them by Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so Paul goes from the greater to the lesser. He says, since 
We were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So Jesus died for us. He died to reconcile us. But now we also know that we shall also be saved by Him. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying that the death and the justification was just one part of a complete work that God is at work doing. So that we will not only be justified because of Jesus, but we also will be sanctified because of Him and will be glorified by Him as well. And so God doesn't put the sanctification and the glorification on us either. It's not saying, Jesus died for you. Okay, we got that part. You're a dirty, rotten sinner, but Jesus died for you. That cleans you and makes you whole. Okay, now it's up for you to go ahead and get sanctified so that you can then attain ultimately the glorification. That's not what it says. Paul is saying that it is a complete work that is done completely and totally by Christ for us and on our behalf. For we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Sorry, I said that backwards. He went from less to greater, much more, not greater to less. Okay. More than that even, verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so again, this speaks to the already, not yet, that Blake was talking about earlier. That while it was a work that was done, we don't have to wait till the end to begin to see it come to pass. Because Jesus is, has already reconciled us to God through his blood. And he is making us new as we go. And so it's important for us to remember who God was sending Jesus for. It's not the well, but the sick. Not the strong, but the weak. Not the spiritually living, but the dead. And for those, not for those who had everything together, but for those who were hopelessly and helplessly falling apart. Now, for some of us today, that is a message of hope. It's a message of hope for those that know they are a wreck. And if that's you today, then I pray that that is what you hear. But for others who perhaps have been puffed up with every kind of self-help gospel and teaching that you are the good the world needs, then this message may come as an insult to your common sensibilities. My prayer today is that God will soften our hard hearts. But this is the truth. We are worse off than we ever imagined. But God is infinitely better than we have ever dreamed. You see, often at this time of year, the message that is so often given and received is this. Hey, everyone. You are awesome. And inherently good. And so God sent Jesus to come and tell you about God and show you how to be an even better version of your already bad mamajama self, okay? Or if you are bad, if you happen to be one of those other people and you are actually bad, like Scrooge or the Grinch, 
And just maybe, because it's Christmas time, and magic is in the air, <laughs> you can get those gingerbread feelings and find it within yourself to change yourself, perhaps even just by realizing that Christmas is about more than gifts. And maybe you, yes, even you, can find that your heart can grow three sizes. So you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. JC is coming to town. And what is it? What is it that we are going to receive now over the next week leading up to Christmas? I'll tell you what it is. It's self-salvation projects and Pelagian heresy. You can do it. Be better. You're good on the inside. You just have to find it. Do good deeds and erase your bad ones. Be on your best behavior and show everyone that you deserve this Christmas gift of Jesus. But we have to recognize the truth this morning, and the truth is, we don't. I don't and you don't. We don't deserve it. What do we deserve? We deserve what Christ got. We deserve death and punishment. The message of the gospel is not, we are so great and awesome and so Jesus came to rescue us out of this world so that we don't have to be bothered by it anymore. No! That is not the message of the gospel. We are the reason this world is the way that it is. Because we are Gomer. Who's Gomer? Not Gomer Pyle. That's actually in my notes. Not talking about Gomer Pyle. <laughs> Who is Gomer in the Bible? Gomer was Hosea's, the prophet Hosea's wife. A wife that God commanded Hosea to take. But here was the catch. God told Hosea up front that she is not going to be faithful to you. Can you imagine that? I mean, even, even just try to wrap your mind around that. Hey, Hosea. I've got this great gift for you, man. You're getting married. Hosea, score, awesome, right? One thing, she's not going to be faithful to you, but you're going to marry her anyways. Not only that, Hosea falls deeply in love with her. And yet, even after a good start, she runs, not just once, not just twice, but repeatedly runs away. You would think that this would be the story of absolute heartbreak. You would be right. But it is also the story of incredible redemption and reconciliation. Pastor Matt Carter in Austin said this. He said, Hosea is the story of a loving, devoted husband who diligently pursues the heart of an unfaithful woman 
But in the end, by Hosea's steadfast, redeeming love for her, she finally returns and the marriage is restored. You see, the Christmas story is the story of Jesus coming to earth in the form of a baby born of a virgin, God incarnate. But the Christmas story is the substance that the shadow of Hosea points to. Why? Because the Christmas story is the story of God pursuing a people whose hearts continually run after other lovers. And yet, in his redeeming love, he sends his son to reconcile them, to save them from his holy and just wrath against sin, to be, as 1 John would say, a propitiation for them, a complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for them and in their place. That's what propitiation means, a complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for them and in their place. You see, often at Christmas we think of how God just thought that we were so great that He sent Jesus so that we could be together forever. But the truth is that we are Gomer. We are the unfaithful and whoring spouse who continually and constantly runs to other lovers. Christmas is the proof of God's unending love, even though we do not deserve it in the least. So what are the implications of this? Two implications that I've found. One, God is not responding in love to us as a result of the fact that we chose to love Him. That's not the way it works. Rather, His love is not reciprocal, it's initiating. God is the one who loves first. He loves first. And how do we know? Because He sent His Son. That's what Paul is saying. In this is love that God sent His Son to die while we were yet sinners. And so God is the one making the first move. That's what I've always gotten grief from with my wife. She says, I never make the first move. God doesn't have that problem. I'm a coward. God's not a coward. God initiates. He makes the first move. He has made the first move. And so much so that he sent his only son to die for us who did not deserve it. If you look at verse 5 in Romans chapter 5, you'll see, and then at verse 6, you'll see that Paul does something interesting. He shows us the subjective way in which we receive God's love, but then he shows us the objective reason that it is a fact. So in verse 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, so we subjectively receive the love of God through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us in our hearts. That's, that's how this is happening. But then verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So our, the subjective way in which we receive the love of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit is then based on the premise that Christ died while we were still sinners. So there is an objective reality to the love of God that is expressed 
to his children, and it is based on the fact that Christ died. Why can Paul, why can any preacher, why should any preacher with Paul say, I've determined among you to know nothing else but Christ and him crucified? How, how can Paul say that and still preach the full gospel? Well, one, because that is the gospel. How can he preach the full counsel of God? Because everything that God is doing in and for his children is based objectively in the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Everything. So God's not responding in love to us as a result of the fact that we chose to love him. Rather, his love is initiating that relationship. Secondly, God does not love us because there is some redeeming quality in us that has caused him to make a double take and go, oh, wow, I want them. But rather, it is entirely the opposite. The Father has chosen before the foundations of the earth, to set his affections on a peculiar people whom he knew would turn their backs on him and reject him, but so that his grace might be made evident, the Godhead covenanted to redeem those rebels through the sacrifice and the mediation of the Son. While we were still sinners and enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, unfaithful, unloving wretches, this is who God sent Jesus for. And freedom and joy comes when we say, that's me. Freedom and joy come from saying, that's me. Christ died to save sinners. And by his blood to purchase their redemption and to cleanse them. And if he washes you, you will be clean. So why are the self-salvation messages of the Christmas season such an affront to the gospel? Because if it is possible for you to save yourself, if it is possible for you to fix yourself, if it is possible for you to just find that goodness inside and drag it out, then you don't need Jesus. And if you are already good on the inside and just haven't found it yet, well, then you don't need to be cleaned by blood. Which means Jesus' death, the pouring out of his blood 
was a waste. It means nothing. If Jesus is just one more tool for you to use to make yourself better, then you are far worse off than you ever imagined. So how is this love then applied to us? If, if that's the case, if, if that's really not what it is, we really can't save ourselves, we really can't fix ourselves, we're really not good on the inside, we really are Gomer, and yes, church, we really are, then how can this love be applied to us? Well, it said it in the first two verses that we read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So how is it applied? It's applied by faith. Justification, right standing before God, is only by faith alone. And where does this faith come from? It's a gift from God. Do you desire it? Then repent of sin and believe the gospel. Christ died to save sinners. He came to die for you. And if you believe, you are saved. And you can only be saved from the wrath of God if you are under the mediation of the Son, if He is your propitiation. And here's what happens if He is. If Jesus pays the price, if He is your propitiation, if He does stand between you and God, if He has wrapped His arms around you, even though you are an unfaithful lover, then this is what happens. You become free to love. You become free to love. Have you ever noticed in all of these self-salvation messages that the bringing out of the good in someone is to gain something for themselves, right? They've got to become good and do good for these other people, but in the end, what is it for the payout on the other side? They have to love first or change first or give first in order that they might truly receive love or change or some Christmas miracle. But with the Father... It's the exact opposite. He loves first. He gives first. Before there has been a change, before there has been one drop of surrender, he moves, he initiates, he sends his son to make a way and to show his love for those whom he has chosen. And if we have received that kind of love freely, it frees us to love without needing anything in return. It's what leads John to pin these words in 1 John 4. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, a complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us, for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He is He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the last implication for us is that in the same way that we have received love from God, so also we ought to love one another. Now, if we follow what John is saying here, again we come to this conclusion that the love that the Christian has to give to his brother or sister in the Lord is not a love that they have dug up from the dregs inside of themselves, but rather it is the fruit of receiving love from God. Which is why Paul can say, if you don't love your brother, you cannot really say that you love God. And if you don't love God, you haven't received the love of God. You aren't in God. But if you are in God and you've been loved by him, then the fruit of that will be love for one another as we talked about last week, what God has commanded, verse 21, God has also already provided. And listen to what it says. He loved us first. And His love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. Why are we afraid? Why do we hold back in love? Why do we not respond in joy? Why do we miss out on the peace and the hope that God has provided for us in Christ? It is for fear. But it is the love of God that is expressed to us in the death of His Son. What did Jesus say about loving your brother? He said that if we truly loved our brother, we'd be willing to lay down our life 
for him. Now, while we may read that in the Gospels and think, okay, I've got to get busy and do that. While the disciples may have heard it and said, okay, well, that's what we're going to try and do. Jesus was setting them up to look back upon his death and say, that is love. That is love. And even when we fail in loving each other, we can still turn and say, see the cross? That is love. We can have confidence for the day of judgment because we have by faith been placed under the mediation of Christ. And this frees us to love brother and sister without pretense. Now this kind of love is not predicated on the kind of love that is the makeup of warm, fluffy feelings and closeness and intimacy, but rather the kind of unabating commitment that we have received from God in spite of our own unfaithfulness. And John is saying, love one another in that way. This means speaking the truth to each other in love and receiving the truth from each other in love, even when it hurts. And it's more than that. It means loving each other, especially when the other person is not being very lovable or loving back. This is supposed to be the difference between the kind of love the world gives and receives and Christian love, that we don't quit. We don't quit because we're so great and we just don't quit. We don't quit because God has never given up on us. Our love is supposed to spring from a because therefore of the gospel. Because we have received love in Christ, therefore let us love one another. Because we have been loved by God in Christ, therefore let us love one another. It doesn't mean we let each other walk all over everybody. Remember, speak the truth in love. But it does mean preferring our brothers and sisters and giving each other grace and failure, knowing that we ourselves need it desperately. That we are Gomer too. <clears throat> this is the kind of love that Jesus said will be the evidence that we belong to him. And so I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine when some of your unsaved friends see you interacting with a brother or sister in Christ who calls you out in your sin and you respond with repentance rather than becoming defensive. I want you to imagine as your unbelieving friend watches that brother or sister wrap their arms around you instead of waiting for you to prove it. I want you to imagine how counterintuitive that would be for them 
to experience. Now, we're not doing it to be counterintuitive. We do it because that is what we have received. Remember the unforgiving servant? The parable that Jesus told? His sin was not in giving to his brother the same kind of mercy and forgiveness that he had received. In not showing love to his brother who owed him a debt, he showed that he didn't really know his king. Though the debt was forgiven, he was still lost in the prison of his own greed. If you love not, you do not know God, for God is love. If you cannot love your brother or sister in Christ, then it shows that the love of God is not really in you. Are there not people that are difficult to love? Yes, of course, there are. This is why you need the Godhead to show you this love at all. But to flippantly and defiantly refuse to love someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, or to refuse to forgive and let go of past hurts, this shows a rejection of the love of God and the sacrifice of the Son in your place. In your heart, you believe, in that moment anyways, you believe that you deserved it. Do you understand that implication? That when you refuse to give forgiveness and love to a brother or sister in Christ, in that moment, you are believing that you somehow deserved the sacrifice of Jesus. You deserved him to be punished. You deserved him to receive your lashes. You deserved him, the son of God, who was sinless and spotless, to go to the cross in your place. You deserved it. You deserved to have the son of God beaten and ripped apart, hanging from a tree. Because in that moment, you believe that you are better than them. Repent. Repent and cry out to God to soften your heart and to remind you that you're Gomer. Church, we don't live this way hoping to get God's attention so that he will see how good we're being. Rather, it is because we have received this kind of love from God that we turn and extend it to each other. Why? Because if I have hope in Christ, if I have peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit, then my heart is freed by his love to love in the same way that I have been loved by him. This is true Christmas love. But it is love that we are called to live in and give and receive and practice in our missional communities, with our church family, to model for the world 
but not just at Christmas. Not just at this time of the year. But for our entire lives. This is the mark that we belong to him. It is the badge of the elect. Our love for one another because we have first been loved by him. He loved us first and he gave his son for us to make children out of enemies. Go therefore in the love you have received and love one another. Let's pray. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the love that we have received in Christ. And God, my prayer is today that we would be reminded who you sent him for. You sent him for us. But not because we are lovely, but because you are love. God, let us know today through the objective reality of the sacrifice of your son that we have been loved by you. And let us come rejoicing in the love that you have given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.